Hi, you're listening to the Ambition Podcast. I'm Alan Buchan, Communications and Insights Assistant at Amber. Last month, I had a conversation with Paul Kearns. He, in 2018, wrote an article for our magazine Ambition, talking about the need to rethink capitalism and the corporation. I spoke to him to find out more about this and also where his research had taken him since 2018. Here's that conversation. So could you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your career, please? Yeah, uh, my name's Paul Kearns. Um, I began life, if you like, uh, in my career terms uh, when I left university many, many years ago in the late uh, 1970s, uh, having done a degree in economics and economic history. Um, struggled actually to come up with the career I wanted to follow, which which you'll probably find as we go through this, why that was the case. Uh, but I, I ended up getting a job in, as a graduate trainee in industrial relations. And this was in the bad old days of UK industrial relations, which I won't spend any time on. Um, but it, I was very young and very green and it was odd to be thrown into the sharp end. Uh, but that's the way the world worked in those days. So um, I then sort of got on a, a conventional HR career track, if I can put it that way. Um, and in 1988, I ended up as an HR executive in a UK auto supply chain business, uh, just at the time when total quality management was really the big thing in, in business management, if I can put it that way. Um, our main customers were Ford and General Motors. And just before I left that business, I, we, we were trying to get on the suppliers list for Toyota who are setting up in the UK. Um, and the day, you know, around the exec table, cause I headed up HR, when we got the pack, the supplier pack from Toyota, it literally just blew my mind because, you know, Ford and General Motors, they had very, very different cultures to what Toyota had. And Toyota's pack started off talking about its management philosophy and its philosophy suppliers and it was just totally different to Ford and General Motors and basically that was one of the inflection points in my career that I thought I'm really interested in this company I'd like to find out more but it also made me take a bit of a uh, digression in my career I started to get very interested in measurement and as I worked in HR HR measurement and and um, in fact that became quite a hot topic at the time in the early 1990s there's lots of conferences talking about the topic of how do you measure this intangible stuff around HR um, and, and basically was teaching myself, as I say, was learning about companies like Toyota, looking for similar companies who did interesting things, particularly around people management. If I jump ahead quite a few years, uh, 2003, I wrote a book called On HR Strategy um, because I believe that the companies i both worked in and then for as a consultant um, did not have anything that I would call a strategy uh, under the title under the heading of HR and, and if they did it was almost disconnected from the business strategy um, and I got interest in I'm not an academic but I got interest uh, in the book from a business school and they asked me to teach their HR strategy program on their MBA course um, and I've, I've said, okay, you know, I'm not an academic, so I don't bring a lot of the academic literature with me, but I'm a practitioner. And I think your students, who, would, who are all reasonably mature people who've worked in industry already, 
would appreciate some practical guidance, if you like, through the course. So anyway, they took me on. I ended up teaching it for the next 10, 10 years. Um, but it started off, I think this is interesting from an AMBER perspective, it started off as an elective course. It wasn't on the core syllabus. And after, I think, two years of teaching it, the students kept saying, this should be a core course, because I was actually teaching to them what just seemed like an ordinary business strategy course, but it happened to focus on the people in the business. Uh, if I jump another 10 years ahead, uh, myself and a small group of colleagues who'd all made their living primarily out of consulting for some years, were very disenchanted with the consulting market, if I can put it that way, uh, in that the, the our clients, who were generally large companies, large international companies, um, were spending a huge amount on consulting, but not improving as a result. And there was almost a merry-go-round of bringing in constantly different groups to consultants trying to solve their problems, but never actually solving anything. And um, we felt disenchanted with this, and we, we thought it was time to set up a new institute, not, not just for consultants, a multidisciplinary institute. Um, and we called it the Maturity Institute because the sort of lessons that we'd all learned from companies like Toyota, uh, we describe as mature, mature management. Um, and I can tell you about that in a bit more detail in a second or two. Um, anyway, as the Maturity Institute, Institute we set our goal out as uh, maximizing societal value. And, uh, but we needed as an institute to codify that in a methodology and to set a measurable progression, if you like, if a company was going to say that it was achieving more societal value, then it, we needed a scale to work from. And that became what we now call OMINDEX, which is an organizational maturity index, which we launched in 2015 um, and that basically that's a very very short version of my career today. So this is not your first time being with AMBA you wrote us an article for our November edition of Ambition where you discussed the need to rethink the purpose of capitalism as a corporation. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you wrote in the article and kind of feel behind it? Yes, it was about uh, redesigning the MBA. Um, and again, it, like most of my work, it comes from experience and practice rather than theory. But when I was, when I was teaching the MBA programme, um, I tried several times to engage the rest of the faculty. Admittedly, we were, we were an international faculty, so it wasn't as if we could just meet up and discuss these things very easily. Um, but I, I couldn't get much interest in say, using the most obvious example as a, as a, a, a what, what I was then called a human capital management guy, um, talking to the people who did finance and accounting on the MBA. I wanted to combine our thoughts on how do you account for people as human capital, uh, etc. And, and again, that was quite a hot topic when I first started teaching the MBA. But I didn't get, didn't get anywhere, to be perfectly honest. Um, but the more, um, again, you know, meeting other colleagues who had similar views, um, it's not so much a theory of a new theory of capitalism. It's just that human capital management hadn't been effectively factored in to what we know as capitalism today. And partly because, um, dare I say it, business schools weren't teaching it in that way. In fact, the reason I was asked to speak on an to teach on the MBA 
was because the two academics who'd been running the program before that, the students said, this isn't helping us, it's too complicated, it's not practical enough. And that's, that's how I ended up teaching on an MBA program. So, so I've always brought practice to the piece rather than theory. But if you, if you want to know the foundation theory of what we regard at Maturity Institute as, as uh, responsible capitalism, it's a very simple premise that even if you are a diehard shareholder primacy business, then surely you have to maximize the value of every person who works in that business. You can't, you can't maximize or optimize anything unless every, everyone who works in the business is behind that goal. Um, so it's a bit self-defeating shareholder primacy because how do you get everybody to be really motivated to do their best if their best interests aren't necessarily being served? So that's the fundamental premise for what we now call uh, responsible capitalism. Um, and and one, my own thoughts were significantly influenced by a book called The Puritan Gift, which came out in 2010, uh, which actually was almost like a, a view of the history of management condensed into one book, going back to 1630. Uh, the book explains why and, and why the title is The Puritan Gift. But it basically goes from then right up to sort of the present day, as was the 2008. I say the book came out in 2010 um, by two guys, uh, Will and Ken Hopper, uh, one who's, who'd been an investment banker and he set up the uh, Institute of Fiscal Studies. And Ken was the more academic consulting person. But they're two brothers and basically they wrote this book together. And it just gives you a really good, for anybody who's a lot younger than me, but for anybody who came into business, say, you know, 20, 30 years ago, um, it basically says, you know, this is where capitalism went wrong in the second half of the 20th century, with shareholder privacy being one of the key targets. Not the only, not the only target, but one of the causal effects, if you like, of the crash of 2008. Um, yeah, so there, there is quite a bit of theory in it, but but it's, you know, the bottom line, if you like, is very, it's a very simple premise that, it's all about people at the end of the day, people as employees and people as customers and people as citizens. And if we can serve all of those interests at the same time, we've got a very solid foundation for a socioeconomic system that we can still call capitalism, if that's the preferred title. So how has this kind of thought moved on since you wrote your article for us? Um, well, that, that article was written in 2018. In 2015, we launched Dom Index, as I mentioned. Um, so we, we, we originally set out, as I say, to measure how a company is performing. And we have a scale that does that, quite a simple scale. Um, but the, the launch actually, or at least the, the original uh, impetus for us to, to produce the first version of OM index was actually the Institute of Directors had a good governance index that they were building in early 2015. And we happened to be put in touch with uh, a guy who was helping them to get that index off the ground using a whole series of metrics and measures, uh, looking at different angles around what does good governance look like. And when we said, um, you know, this is, this is a, these are the questions we ask about a business to see if it's responsible and if it's got good governance. He said that fits perfectly with this good governance index idea. In, in the end, the uh, Institute of Directors didn't take up our, uh, our own index. It was brand new, I hasten to add at the time. 
Um, but since then, to answer your question, so we've had five years of development from that original version. And in fact, um, we started by actually looking at companies, actually contacting companies and saying, would you be interested in answering some of these questions? Because we think it would be in your interest as well to understand particularly the human capital piece and, and how it makes a difference to the value of your business. We didn't get much pickup in or take up in the early days for, for obvious reasons, the way the, the, the way the current world of capitalism is and how large international corporations operate. And, you know, if you want to talk to them, you have to go through investor relations, which was fine with us. Uh, we contacted investor relations always and let them know what we were doing. But either way, we started to produce some ratings, uh, primarily based on external information, anything that was in the public domain that we could get our hands on. And then we sent them the, uh, the scores that we produced and asked them if they wanted to engage in it. Um, now, since 2018, to go back to when we actually wrote the articles, so the actual OM index itself had been developed for about three years. Uh, in 2019, our work was brought to the attention of Cambridge Judge Business School, Professor Christoph Locke at the, at the business school, who's the Dean of the uh, Cambridge Judge Business School. Um, because uh, a PhD researcher that he was supervising had looked at our data uh, on the uh, external evidence that we produced to say where companies were managing their human capital well, what difference it was making to the financial performance of the business and found there's some very strong correlations between the, the questions we asked for OM index and the actual performance of the business. And that ended up with us working with um, Cambridge Church Business School. Uh, they wanted us to do, to use our OM index questions to look at family owned businesses. They had a particular interest at the time in own ownership, if you like, and as a broader issue in, in governance again, because it is the, it's definitely the flavor of the month at the moment and has been for some time really this whole question of governance um, so we did a, a study with them which they're still the the research is still working on the data as we speak so it's come on quite a bit really since 2018 um, and that's that uh, study um, somebody who knows our work uh, put them into in put us in touch with a company called redburn research so we're now currently working with equity analysts and training equity analysts how to look at companies they already do that themselves to do their equity an analysis uh, but now they're using our om index to add a whole series of questions that gives them a much bigger fuller sort of deeper picture of an organization and again human capital is a key part of it um, but governance and culture and system and a whole range of things that get covered in om index gives them a it gives them a picture that adds something to their, their generally financial analysts um, and accountants become financial analysts. So it's sort of, we've, we've more or less blended together these two perspectives on companies. Um, so we're in, we're in a very interesting time in the evolution, if you like, of the Maturity Institute <clears throat> in that we are now taking this combined analysis to the companies themselves. And early signs are that the companies are actually warming to this now because they see that it gives them an insight into their own business, which they didn't have before. And so in your article, you call for a complete redesign of the MBA to shift into a total stakeholder value way of teaching. Have you seen any business schools kind of take this up? Um, and 
do you see this kind of being a shift in the reality of MBAs in the future? Um, the simple, blunt answer is no. Um, Cambridge, we were amazed that Cambridge um, picked it up at all, really, because, you know, untried, untried sort of methodology, or at least academically. Um, so uh, we've got a very good relationship with Cambridge, but they, they funded the research themselves because they saw it as being really uh, potentially important to develop, if we can put it that way. But you'd expect something, well, you'd expect any business school not to rush into a new methodology, and we fully understand that. So it takes time. And in, in fact, the, you know, Christoph himself um, basically wants to get evidence. He wants to see evidence in a separate study so he can test out the methodology to the standards of Cambridge. So, um, and we're quite happy with that because we want to, as an institute, we want the evidence that we're producing not only to be recognized, validated, but we're, we model ourselves, if you like, on the medical profession in terms of being, you know, uh, applying a scientific method to management and getting evidence of value creation as a result of that. So we set ourselves some very high standards. So we welcome working with business schools. We've, we'd actually, um, we were approached in 2016 when the index had only been around for a year by Harvard uh, uh, Law School, actually. Uh, they, they run a pensions and capital stewardship program. So, you know, pen, who, who's going to pay the pensions in the future? They saw our work as being very relevant to that, you know, inquiry. Uh, how how do we sustain businesses so that pensioners can get paid at the end of the day their pensions? And we actually trained two the two academics that we work with at Harvard in the uh, in in OM index and the methodology. We were planning to do a big scale study then, but we couldn't get funding for it. So we welcome the, the Cambridge uh, study. Uh, but generally, I think one of the problems, and this is not a criticism of business schools, it's a criticism, if anything. That we have allowed capitalism to lose lose its course you know if you go back to the puritan gift you know the roots of capitalism are much more well-meaning and in everybody's interest than the version that came out in the second half of the 20th century as, as the harper brothers showed in their book um, so really what how can a business school change its ways unless there's recognition of the fact that capitalism as it is, shareholder primacy as it, as it is, has to change. Now, I think as soon as we get some business schools accepting that and openly recognising it, they have a huge challenge ahead of them. It's saying to their whole faculty, what does this mean for every person who teaches on the MBA? So we can see why it hasn't happened, but we don't see any reason why it shouldn't happen moving forward. So in your article, you describe 2008 as being the date of capitalism's de demise. So many are comparing COVID-19's impact on economies to what happened in 2008. Um, what do you think the implications of COVID-19 will be on organisation strategy? That's a very interesting question. Um, I think 2008, for obvious reasons, was, was when capitalism changed forever. In fact, you could pick other dates as well. Um, last year, the uh, the business roundtable in the US, you know, came out with the statement that all stakeholders matter. Um, so it was seen as a signal that shareholder primacy is at an end, at least in terms of 
formal recognition as, as the main driver of corporations. I think what COVID has already done has shown the world just how important everybody is as part of a whole system. And who, who would have expected this to happen? But you know, who, who are the real heroes that are coming out of COVID-19? You know, nurses, doctors on the front line, delivery drivers, cleaners in hospitals. You know, when you bring it down to brass tacks, the things that really make an organization operate effectively and can only operate at its best if all these people are working well are the people on the front line. Um, and it's interesting that the NHS, for example, in the UK, well, any health service anywhere in the world has had to deal, deal with the, the brunt of COVID-19. And, and we we've always modeled ourselves on the medical profession. And these people have put their lives on the line, not for money, but for the fact that it's a vocation and that's what management should be. Um, and you know what's let a lot of the uh, responses to COVID down is supply chain. You know, they've not had enough stocks of, you know, personal protective equipment. Um, so some very simple logistics. But, you know, why, why haven't those stocks been there? Pandemics have been around for quite a long time and there's always been the threats of them. So the management side of this has actually let the side down. Um, and there's no point pointing the finger at anybody. But management generally has not dealt with this very well. It's not been prepared for it. And it's left people very vulnerable, both people who get COVID and, and the people who have to look after them. So I think, I think, I hope, um, you know, society can have quite short memories sometimes, but I really hope that a lot of good will come out of COVID, but primarily as somebody who's now talking about management, you know, management quality, management capability, uh, management responsibility, hopefully, uh, particularly as a maturity institute, uh, COVID is saying, you know, we need people to step up in management terms and, and business schools and MBA programs need to grasp that opportunity and say, how do we guarantee when somebody we've educated not only can, you know, talk the talk, but can walk it as well um, and actually put new ideas into practice, pri primarily about better human capital management in organisations. So just one last question for you. Um, one way in which organisations can see if they are mature is through answering your 32 questions on maturity. Why is it important that these questions are being asked? And why is it important that's asked the, only the CEO of the organisation? Um, well, obviously, the CEO is in the prime position, you know, that who who is ultimately responsible for the big operational, well, the big strategic decisions, obviously with the board behind them, but, you know, in our operational terms, the CEO um, signs off the big decisions, uh, should be committed to, to achieving the goals of the organization, et cetera, et cetera, and, and basically manages the rest of the exec team. So unless, unless the CEO and the, the other executives and, and board members understand what organizational maturity is, they're not likely to be able to have their own goal of becoming a more responsible business. Um, I mean, responsibility, corporate social responsibility has been around for a long time and, and people are still struggling. In, in the investment world, ESG, environmental, social and governance issues are now actually really testing the minds of investors as well. So you have the investment community looking at businesses and saying to themselves now, is this CEO the person who's going to help them through this sort of ESG transition? 
to have all that going on in the background. So the CEOs, I guess, top of the pile, and, and we need them to give their answers to the 32 questions. But actually, um, you know, we, as I say, we're not academics in front of the Institute, we're practitioners. And we know how difficult it is sometimes to turn a theory into practice. So really the 32 questions of, of the Omindex question set can be answered by anybody, anybody reason, they don't have to be a genius. It can be answered by any reasonably intelligent person working in an organization. It could be answered by an ordinary employee who can look at questions about say performance management and thinking, oh, that, that applies to me. How is my performance managed? Do I get a say in that or am I just there to target? Another question on learning, am I, am I encouraged to learn? Am I allowed to learn if I do learn something? Am I able to put it into practice or do they just say, oh, that was the training course, you know, now back to reality on the production line or whatever. So it's, it's actually designed to be read by any reasonably intelligent person. And the questions, although they're very probing, most of them, the sense in, in why we're asking them is pretty clear to anybody, really. Um, and, and what we're trying to achieve in the 32 questions is coherence and cohesiveness so in fact we have two con two specific questions on that so you know we're used to businesses and ceos putting out their strategy double digit figure growth and all this sort of thing the question i'm asks is yeah okay fine that's all right May maybe as a target have you really thought through the full implications of that both in terms of the effect it's going to have on your organization because it it could be a minus effect at the end of the day if you drive hard targets and people start playing games internally, so they're not the one to blame if the targets aren't it. But more importantly, positively, you know, have you got everybody in the business behind you? Or, or are they all thinking, whatever we do, the only people who are going to be happy out of this is the shareholders. If you don't bring those two sets of interests into some sort of form of mutual benefit, um, a CEO is struggling before they even start. And then often they have to spend their time catching up with resolving problems that should never have arisen in the first place. But the 32 questions helps the CEO put together a strategy that is already coherent. We have specific questions about how, how that strategy itself, the business model itself, hangs together and whether it gives their employees the best chance of delivering to the customer at the end of the day. So, so it's, it is a, uh, it's an easy to read relatively easy to understand and answer, have a stab at answering those questions and getting an idea of how all the questions add up to a score that gives an overall impression of how responsible the business is. Um, and also going back to business schools and MBA programs, I don't see any reason, it's an open source document. So uh, we're happy for people to play around with it. Uh, obviously as an institute, we, we only will have people accredited to use it if they become members of the institute. But you can play around with it and try it out. You can read the book that goes with it, The Mature Corporation. Um, and people can start to see the simplicity of what management should always be about. Well, thank you so much for talking to me today. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me. Thank you so much to Paul for that fascinating conversation. If you'd like to read the article that we discussed in the podcast, head to our website and click on Ambition for Business Schools under the Business School tabs. And make sure to listen out for the next Ambition podcast.